please be advised. This podcast contains mature content with depictions of death, violence, and triggering depictions of child harm. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone else is struggling with a traumatic stress from childhood, please reach out to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network at nctsn.org. This week's episode is dedicated to two very special individuals. This first individual taught us to fall in love with vampires and had an extraordinary love for the horror community. Thank you, Anne Rice, for the amazing writing that you gave the world and giving this insane little horror girl a reason to love vampires. Our second dedication goes out to Michael Sanders. Thank you so much for allowing us to use your story, Gramps. And I love you and I hope you have the best birthday today. Out of the darkness and into the fire. Harper is here to guide you back to where you need to be. Now try those eyes and take my hands and we'll be on our way. Do you two like stories? Hmm? There is one I know about two wandering whippersnappers who also lost their way home, much like you. Their names were Hansel and Gretel. Man is the cruelest animal. Frederick Nietzsche. The large man, at least to the young boy he was large, asked, Do you know what a penis is? The elderly yet distinguished Westport House held their ears against the red sounds of the domestic discord. It was not that they hadn't heard similar sounds many times before, but rather it was only that such sounds made them feel sadder than they were already feeling from the leafless trees and months of dreary snow. Normally, during such violations of suburban quiet, two parties' voices were clearly audible. This time, only the shrill voice of a long-suffering wife 
second wife, that is, reverberated in the icy air. It was just that Mr. Samuel's voice was not raised in rebuttal. On those rare instances, he got to speak at all. As a matter of fact, he spoke in a somewhat hushed tone, perhaps to encourage the second Mrs. Samuels to do the same, or perhaps of the embarrassment for the indecorous disturbance of the weekend peace in this somewhat crusty Selvin neighborhood. Stanley Samuels, a slightly shorter than average with thinning brown hair and middle-aged bald spot and clear plastic frame glasses that emphasize the melancholy in his muddy brown eyes, were haggard from his wife's verbal assaults. They had been going on since late afternoon. Ordinarily, he enjoyed living in this post-rustic town from which he commuted to New York every weekend morning. Even though the train ride was a bit long, he valued the hour or so of guaranteed quiet to contemplate his less-than-idyllic life. This morning, like an increasing number of weekend mornings, he did not gratefully get to slip out of the house before his wife awoke, as he was able to do on most workdays. He tried to simulate sleep with a rumpled pillow bunched under his head, but despite the rouge, the herring started while they were both still in bed. A long litany of routine complaints about his insubordinate children and her ruined life. She deserved better. Of that she was left, no doubt, and that he would pay the price. And pay he did. He felt as if he were a prisoner of war, and his two children were being slowly killed in action. Had there been any way to have predicted this? Each time her tirades began anew, the scenario would run over and over in his head. His first wife's death from cervical cancer, the two years of juggling work, daycare, and later school, then meeting Shirley and her circle of disingenuous friends, how he was passed over for promotion, and then passively been drawn, as if by gravity, into marriage to fill the void, sucker his wounds, and deliver some relief from the droning demands of a single parenthood, always circling around him like hungry wolves. Somehow it seemed as if he were an uninvolved observer, and that his life was happening to someone else, someone who might actually deserve it. Shirley Samuels was a natural redhead with a faintly pockmarked but otherwise attractive squarish face, although her close acquaintances thought it a bit masculine. Her red pubic hair had an impeccable sexual attraction for Stanley after his protracted period of celibacy. She had full breasts and only slightly thickened waist. After graduating from Bernard with a degree in French literature, she had worked her way to be editor of a prestigious literary magazine with a gratuitously small circulation. Her sense of self-importance kept marriage at bay throughout a series of perfunctory affairs. But when she had found herself discordantly single at the age of 36, she decided to marry the next comer, who, to his misfortune, was Stanley Samuels. Stanley was a tolerant enough candidate 
He owned a house in Westport and seemed unlikely to be too sexually bothersome. His main drawbacks were having two children, and of course, Connecticut not being a community property state. Well, he would have to ship his spawn off to his first wife's relatives. It would take some work, of course, but unrelenting tactical campaigns, she calculated, would allow her to achieve her goal. As editor, she'd read enough manuscripts about married life to understand how that kind of thing was accomplished. As long as it didn't take too long. It had snowed that night, and though the next day began as overcast, sun was predicted for the afternoon. Peter and Pam watched cartoons all morning, with the volume low, so as not to call down retributions from upstairs. They were both blonde and fine-featured, with the unmistakable look of obstinacy in their eyes. Peter, the older, had made them breakfast, pouring frosted flakes and milk into two hand-painted ceramic cereal bowls, and afterwards put the soiled dishes and utensils into the dishwasher. They had learned the price for not cleaning up after themselves, following their father's second marriage. Their new mother's voice pierced like a glass knife and knotted their stomachs on these days when there was no school. They could both remember their real mother clearly, and for the eight and ten-year-old, it was difficult to comprehend why their new mother was always so angry. Both had developed different tactics for defending themselves against her wrath. Peter had adopted his father's method of going along to get along until the crest had passed, a variation on playing possum. On the other hand, Pam, who had inherited her natural mother's stubbornness, instinctively responded with a howling tantrum as effective as any porcupine's quills. Nevertheless, what could turn a soul to rage so unremittingly was a question well beyond their years. Stanley came downstairs in his baggy pajamas just before 11 and informed his children that their mother was still in bed. Turning off the television, he told them to go out to play. It was a good day to take their sleds around the block to the house behind theirs. It had a sizable hill and the owners were in Florida for the winter. They couldn't cut through their backyard because of the fence between properties. Every backyard in their upscale neighborhood possessed clearly defined property markers, no doubt an antivism from the time when primitive man had staked out and defended his parcel of earth. Memorializing the shift to farm from hunting and gathering, not that there were any primeval hunters left, especially not in Westport, Connecticut. Sylvester had always hated his name, but eventually his sadistic parents could no longer keep from him the fact that its diminutive was sly. He liked that. So sly he was, but also pale, nervous, and almost always on the verge of tears. Sly was also what he would have to be to keep his unholy secret safe. 
his delight, indeed his revelry, in taking life of extinguishing the vital force of animated beings. He discovered this pleasure by chance, while innocently murdering insects, as toddlers do. Later, as a youth, watching the encroaching emptiness cloud over canine and feline eyes helped make the agony of having to live life as himself more bearable. However, after the cataclysm of puberty, mere analgesia alone would no longer suffice. He could now feel another imperative from inside his loins that could only be sated by dispensing death. And over slow years of trial and error, he developed reliable rituals for delaying and maximizing its shuddering release. At first, he believed that aborting an adult human life would unleash the ultimate ecstasy, but soon sensed something missing. Elemental powerfulness. An adult, after all, could be rendered helpless, but was in no essence not so. It was abject vulnerability that heightened both the purity and the intensity of his pleasure to a sacrament he himself was powerless to deny. Simply put, he craved children. By middle age, Sylvester, now a short man with an eggplant-shaped body, a reddish brush mustache, and an unkept curly auburn hair, had perfected or at least settled upon, a two-staged process. Once incarcerated, children were almost limitlessly malleable through hunger. He had tried television and movies, but their application was too complicated and time-consuming, while physically, punishment was counterproductive. His modius operandi, the ritual, he called it, was not dissimilar from others' sexual encounters of the quotidian kind. First, he needed a child to touch and arouse itself in order for him, in turn, to become aroused. A facsimile of foreplay. Indirect though it was, the thought of someone else Touching his body smothered him in a bottomless, dark dread, echoing from the past and extinguishing all possibilities of pleasure. Likewise, he found that he should not touch a child's intimate tissues himself, since this only seemed to hurt or frighten it. Some children, because of developmental immaturity or impalpable fear, were unable to cooperate at all. So they were advanced immediately to the next stage in which the climactic experience was not nearly as powerful, but still satisfying. However, the ones who were arousable were exquisitely more gratifying. 
those he kept for several days or as long as he could stand the mounting pressure, increasing the expectation of an even greater eviscerating pleasure in which he would be hurtled into nothingness while at the same time expanding to fill the universe with undifferentiated bliss. Like a practice enophile, anticipating the exact moment immediately before a wine reached its perfection, Sylvester had become a connoisseur of prepubescent children, able to almost telepathically perceive when their sexuality was at the razor's edge of blooming. He could accept a trace of pubic hair since that could be depilated, but if a boy's penis had even begun to suggest the frightening shape of an adult male's, he would promptly consign to the next stage. That second and final stage in the ritual was asphyxiation with a plastic bag. Indeed, wasn't the agonal aching and withering of their little bodies the perfect simulacrum of a sexual crescendo? And didn't the mechanical dullness, the languor of bearing those very same bodies, did it not mimic postcoital torpor? Pam and Peter trudged the short hallway, leading from their kitchen to the garage, took hold of their respective sleds, and carried them outside after electronically closing the overhead door behind them. Once outside, they can pull their sleds by the tethers, their footsteps silently imprinting into the newly fallen powdery snow, the vapor of their breaths wisping away in the crisp air. Peter wore his black polyester snowsuit, a yellow wool knit cap pulled down over his ears, and gray woolen gloves. His sister's snowsuit was light blue with its hood clenched around her chin, barely a glimpse of her face remaining exposed. Her dark blue plastic-coated mittens were attached by a piece of yarn threaded up one sleeve and down the other. They both had thick red and yellow striped mufflers tied around their necks and matching black rubber boots with the legs of their snowsuits tucked inside. A cell phone nestled in Peter's pants pocket. City snowplows had lumbered through before daybreak. The two children tramped up the freshly cleared street to the nearest corner. The neighborhood was plush with tall, thick-trunked elms, oak and maple trees, their top coats of new snow shimmering in the glare of the forecasted sunshine, filtering through their angular limbs. The wind had created several large drafts that needed to be circumvented in order to round the block. As they started down the street, running parallel behind their own, they saw a white fan about a quarter of the way down the block. There were familiar sounds coming from its interior. Sylvester had awakened early, after a night of, of vividly colored, cruel dreams. His heart raced, and breaths came in short, anxious gasps. The bedsheets were rumpled and wet. He knew it was time. The last two days of reconnoitering were causing unpleasant tingling sensations in his groin, and he could feel pressure building inside his skull. His body was telling him to hurry up 
if he didn't want the aching to start in his testicles. His sexual ritual had been well worked out, but the actual capture of the children still continued to evolve. He had already settled on chloroform for its ease of use, although a fatal misadventure early on taught him how potent the drug was and how sparing he had to be to avoid another deadly overdose. It could kill a horse. He then reasoned that in order not to arouse suspicion or alarm during capture, a child had to be lured at least part way into a parked vehicle so it could be quickly subdued. He had expended most of his effort in finding an attraction that would be reliably appealing to preteen children. After trying several variations, he was forging today in a white van with a wide sliding door on its side. Placing a large television screen inside enabled him to play popular children's movies, picking colorful scenes with songs that could be easily recognized from a distance. Having found a residential street with signs of young children in the yards and little automobile traffic, he parked the van at the curb with its sliding door open. The television was positioned to make it only partially visible so as to lure a young child at least partially inside to improve its view. Hidden near the rear window, he could examine any approaching children and, if he judged one of them to meet his tastes, activate the TV by remote control when he judged them close enough to hear the music. Most children didn't stop for more than a few seconds before walking by. But if one did stop to watch, it would invariably lean in to get a better view, making capture quick and quiet. That little creep's been stealing money from my purse. I told you before, but you're not doing anything about it. What's the matter? Are you afraid of a 10-year-old? I don't think he would do that, Shirley. Okay, he's a good kid. <laughs> good kid, my ass. He's got sneaky little eyes like yours. Once again, he decided it was best to stay silent and let her run herself out. And what about that precious girl of yours, hmm? If she's so great, why is she always sneaking in here and going through my things, hmm? She's been rummaging in my drawers again, and don't tell me she hasn't. But you keep the bedroom door locked, he blurted. Don't change the subject. You'd better start calling your ex's family and see about getting them someplace else to live, because I can't do this any longer. I mean it, Stanley. Judging that she had accomplished enough for this session, Shirley advanced to the second part of her ritual. She really couldn't understand how the dope wasn't catching on. <sighs> I'm going to take a shower. She sighed with an unmistakable exasperation of the wronged, pulled her sweater over her head, and stepped out of her pants. As always, she had pre-positioned herself to Stanley's right so that she could have to cross in front of him to put her clothes in the closet, and after removing her bra and panties, would have to pass him again, naked to get to the bathroom. She accentuated her step to maximize the lift and fall of her breasts as she went by. Ugh, I can hear his erection. Little pervert. Months earlier, 
Sylvester had found the perfect spot in Wilton, just a few miles northeast of Westport. It was a small stone cottage on an infrequently traveled gravel road, several miles from the nearest paved street. The cottage roof was covered with more than a foot of accumulated snow, and the light gray smoke issuing from the chimney was nothing short of courier and ives. From his lair, he could stalk the plentiful commuter communities stretched between Westchester County and New Haven. In the nine months since he had relocated from upstate New York, he had already harvested Pound Ridge, Darren, and Ridgefield, but had been unsuccessful once in Weston and once on the outskirts of Danbury. He planned to move on to Norwalk if Westport didn't bear fruit. It was important not to be noticed nor remembered. He was neither particularly tall nor short, fat nor thin, except for his mustache, which he had removed and regrown in alternating six-month cycles. He was clean-shaven. He had dressed plainly in muted colors, in neither an urban nor rural style. Courting amenity, he maintained such a blank expression that people never nodded or smiled as they passed. In short, he was the kind of person you would not remember, having just shared an elevator with. In fact, you would have sworn you were alone. The small cottage suited his needs. There was one bedroom and a storage closet large enough for a small mattress on the floor. A rough henstone fireplace was set into one wall with a cast iron Franklin stove protruding into the dark stained knotty pine living room. The kitchen was small but utilitarian. Although isolated, the cottage was within eight miles of several fast food restaurants that prepared the perfect inducement for eliciting compliance from hungry children. And behind the cottage, like a rural parish churchyard, lay a sparsely wooden plot, quiet as the grave. Upon their arrival at the cottage, the children were still asleep from the chloroform. He locked them in the storage closet and went for dinner. He found it best to let the children exhaust himself physically and emotionally and miss a few meals before trying to entice him into the ritual. Sylvester did not feel that he was homosexual. His preference for boys was purely empirical. Prepubescent girls just didn't seem able to respond as he needed, and he was too unfamiliar with how they worked to understand why. When he saw Peter and Pam approach the van, Pam's face had been so shrouded in her hood that in his excitement, he thought he had captured two boys. He had never taken two boys at once before. And even this time, it was more of a sudden impulse than a conscious decision. During their ride to the cottage, he fantasized about two naked boys playing together, an erotic cornucopia. It wasn't until their snowsuits had been stripped off that he realized his mistake. He also really saw Peter's face for the first time, and its beauty struck him like a heavy hammer. Having a child under his control always excited him. But this was something altogether new, and he was unable to contain his own excitement. The boy's delicate cheeks, fine flexing hair, and sensual mouth intoxicated him in a way that 
transcended pure sexuality. He frankly tried to clear his head, but having already been bitten, didn't realize it was too late. After leaving the children locked in the closet, he drove to the diner as if in a dream, heart pounding and breathing almost painfully, intoxicated. Thank God for the ritual. The well-practiced processes would surely save him. The automobile parked in the Samuel's driveway had an official shield with Westport Police painted in green on its doors, and its rooftop beacon swept the deepening darkness with rotating rays of colored light. Sitting across the kitchen table from Stanley and Shirley, the crisply uniformed officer took notes, interrupting from time to time to ask question or clarify a point. He was a tall man with ruddy features, large hands and a full head of black hair. Stanley was dressed in the same khaki pants and blue Oxford shirt with rolled up sleeves he had been in all day. Shirley had changed into a white silk robe with red and black Chinese calligraphy. anything happened to them. I, I just love those angels so much. The stepmother was saying, tears welling in her eyes. Please don't be upset, ma'am. The officer said comfortingly. In most of these cases, they just went to a friend's house without telling their parents. So first thing I need you to do, call around to all the friends' homes. I'm sure you'll find them in no time. In any event, I'll have a couple cars drive around the neighborhood even though they won't be able to see much because it's dark, you've given me a pretty good description of what they're wearing. Oh, oh, thank you, Officer Turner. I'll start calling immediately, she replied, not having the faintest idea who her stepchildren's friends were or if they even had any friends at all. In fact, she knew as little about them as she could possibly manage. As she got up, she leaned across the counter to touch the policeman's forearm, letting the top of her robe fall open so he can see both of her breasts. <laughs> Do you have a cell phone I can call you on if I need you, officer? Oh, and take my cell number in case our phone is busy. Stanley impatiently broke in. If they're not at their friend's officer, I mean, if they've been, you know, taken by someone, what's going to happen then? If we don't locate them this evening, Mr. Samuels, we'll alert the police in the surrounding towns and we'll start a full-scale search in the morning. By the way, it would help if you could give me some recent photos of the children. After all that, well, to be perfectly honest, every 24 hours they're not found increases the chances of let's just say, a less good outcome, even if they're just lost. Smaller children are more susceptible to hypothermia, so we're going to do everything we can to find them as soon as possible. We suggest you use your cell phones while you look for them tonight, just in case someone who does want to contact you, you know, as about a ransom or something like that, just in case, even though that's probably not what's happened. I'm afraid our children don't have many friends around here, but my wife will make the calls. In the meantime, I'll start driving around the area. Officer Turner had started to stand up when Stanley added, Oh yeah, I remember. 
My son has a cell phone. Gave it to him for his birthday. It's one of those with automatic GPS tracking, just in case he ever got lost. Can't we, I mean, can't you use that, you know, even in the dock? Oh, of course we can. Let me write down his number and I'll get it to the state police in the morning. But like I said, most of the time they're just hanging out with their friends. Maybe somebody's dad took them out for pizza or a movie and they just forgot to call you. After the policeman left, Shirley clucked to herself. (laughs) Maybe I got lucky. Sylvester wasn't sure he was lucky or not. As soon as he opened the cottage door, he heard the girl sobbing, screaming her voice raw. Oh God, she sounds hysterical. He thought. He went to the small television on the rolling cart, turned the volume up loud, and sprawled on the thinly stuffed sofa. But the image of the boy's sleeping face levitated before him like a spirit. In one way, although he didn't know it, he was lucky. Being overcome with this newfound excitement, Sylvester had neglected to search the children's clothing for cell phones, something he routinely did. Fortunately for him, the cottage's stone structure blocked all signals to and from Peter's GPS locator, snatching away any chances of their being found, like breadcrumbs eaten by hungry birds. But the girl's voice shrieked on and on. Finally, Sylvester got up and left the cottage again. He had noticed a movie theater in downtown Westport, where he could spend a couple of peaceful hours in the solitude of the crowd. The feature, Elephant Man, had just begun. It's about freaks, he thought to himself, as a storm in his mind churned, agitated by the boy's luminous face and the burning in his bones. What did they know about freaks? They all thought he was a freak, but he was no goddamn freak. They were all the freaks. Pussy freaks. They wanted it. They needed it, the same way he needed kids. It was natural. They couldn't help themselves any more than he could. It was the genes, hormones, brain chemicals. Pussy got them hot, like queers turned on queers. Big deal. Little kids got him hot. So what? It felt right, goddammit. It felt right. Did they think you really got a choice? They were feelings for Christ's sakes. They happened to you like earthquakes, like the flu. They just happened to you. The girl was quiet now. Breakfast aromas filled the cottage. He had heated the pancake syrup and bacon in the microwave to stimulate the children's hunger. Although fatigued after being unable to sleep for the past two nights, an intense anticipation reanimated him, sending tingling sensations down his back and into his groin again. It made him more anxious than usual to get started. But as soon as he tried to call up the intoxicating image of the boy's face, it shattered 
like an ice sculpture by piercing echoes of the girl's screams reverberating soundlessly in his head. She had to be his sister, he thought, so he couldn't just kill her without assuming the risk of losing the boy. For the process to work, they needed complete focus. There could be no distractions when a youth was being coaxed out onto the tightrope of his insepid sexuality. The mechanisms were primed by nature. They needed only to be nudged by a patient coach. Sylvester hadn't felt butterflies for, for so long, but they were fluttering violently this morning. Unlocking the door, he stood back, barely breathing. The boy came out first, inquisitive, shielding his eyes from the light with one hand and pulling the girl behind him with the other. An incendiary spark from the boy's beauty instantly reignited the fire inside Sylvester's chest. Then he froze at the sight of the wretched girl, as if she were Medusa herself. Aspiring, her breathing seemed shallow and quick. She was thin with dirty blonde hair, now tangled and matted to her sweaty head. Her eyes were puffy and red, and her dirt-smeared face was covered with crusted tears, her cheeks with violaceous blotches. Bubbles of mucus hung in her nostrils. She looked dazed, almost hypnotized, as she slunk into the room. Her feet were bare and her toes were bloody and raw from hysterically kicking at the door for hours on end. She was much too young to be here. Sylvester suddenly realized how overwhelmed he must have been at the van not to have noticed. But now, it was too late. Pushing her out of his mind, his eyes were drawn away, as if by powerful magnets, back to the boy's delicate, narrow face. His skin was so white as to be almost translucent. His eyes, which he had not seen while the boy slept, the eyes were preternaturally large and slate blue, like the winter ocean, with long, fine lashes that blinked slowly in the bright sunlight slicing horizontally through the cottage windows. You must be hungry. Sylvester stammered cheerfully, like a friendly uncle. Come on, sit down. The ritual was taken over. He motioned to the round table with the two plates of pancakes and bacon and a pitcher of syrup set to one side, across from the two chairs. A third chair sat between the food and the others. Peter, whose attention had already been drawn to the table by the smell of food, wordlessly walked over, pulling his sister by the hand, then placed her in one of the two chairs and sat in the other. His hunger made him lean towards the food, like a racehorse straining at the gate, awaiting a signal from the unknown man who had sat down in the third chair. The man pushed the plate in front of the children, and Peter pounced on the food, forking a large piece of pancakes into his mouth. The girl just stared ahead, unseeing. Before the boy could take a second piece, the man pulled the plates away and said, I want you to do me a little favor, and then... You can get right back to your food. Nothing, really. I want to borrow what you're wearing. Just for a few minutes. 
It's it's okay. It's really warm in here anyway. I'll give them right back to you, I promise. I just want to see them for a minute, you know, to see how they're made. Indeed, it was very warm. The Franklin stove having been filled and stoked all night in preparation for this moment. The girl didn't move, seeming not to have heard. The boy looked over at the food, down at his shirt, then over at the food again. He shrugged his shoulders and pulled the red long-sleeve polo over his head and kicked off his navy blue sweatpants he had been wearing underneath his snowsuit. The man pushed the plates back. Peter immediately began devouring the food in large mouthfuls, not seeming the least bit uncomfortable dressed only in his underwear. His sister remained motionless, except for her rapid breathing. I've got him, thought Sylvester excitedly. Just need to get the girl out of here. Can't afford any distractions. Not now. Slowly, standing up, he took the girl by the arm and walked her quickly back to the closet, relocking the door. The boy was occupied eating and didn't seem to notice until the plate was pulled out of his reach again. He was having his hunger satisfied. Now, it was Sylvester's turn. You can get back to that in a minute, said the man, who had moved his chair closer to the boy and sat back down. But first, I want to ask you a question. Turn, turn your chair on a little so I can see you better. The boy did as he was told and sat back down, staring inquisitively at the large man. At least... He looked large to him. Do you know what a penis is? He had directed this opening line so many times. He could even remember how often. But rather than the rush of rising excitement he usually experienced, Sylvester felt embarrassed as soon as the words tumbled out, the phrase bilious in his mouth. Never before, in all the many rituals he'd performed, had this happened to him. Rather than commencing the well-practiced process of bartering the aromatic food for a hungry child's favor, he dissolved into utter confusion, and instead pushed the food back across the table. Eat. Your Uncle Sly wants you to eat. Adrift, Sylvester sat, externally still, but inside reeling. He had closed his eyes and tried to concentrate, but he was in a vortex of entropy. The ritual! The ritual! I need the ritual! He thought to himself. He forced himself to visualize the boy, naked, aroused, looking at him with those large slate blue eyes, smiling. Of course, it would work. It always worked and he began again to anticipate the pleasure flowing through his nerves and electric fire. But before he could continue his fantasy, a high-pitched scream burst out of the closet. The girl was wailing again, her voice rasping even more raw than before. Suddenly, a tidal wave of fatigue washed over him, like a viscous liquid seeping through the interstices of his brain and the endless, piercing screams were disorienting him. He felt himself underwater, slow, dulled, not knowing which way to turn. 
one thought would just not follow the other. Finally, he managed to say, Your sister needs to go to sleep. She wants to go home. She's scared, Peter replied. Of course she can go home. Both of you can go home. But in a little while. First, she needs some sleep. I'm going to give her some medicine so she can sleep. And then we can talk a little. And then you can both go home. Things were beginning to coalesce again for Sylvester. I can still make this work. He thought. What kind of medicine? The boy asked. It's a special medicine just for children. She has to smell it and she'll go to sleep. I promise. Not giving Peter a chance to reply, Sylvester quickly retrieved the chloroform from the kitchen cabinet and unlocked the closet door. He turned his back so the boy couldn't see him holding his sister down, forcing her to breathe in from the liquid-soaked handkerchief. You see, all she had to do was smell it. Here, I'll show you. He turned to face the boy. I just put a little medicine on this handkerchief and held it under her nose and she went to sleep. She'll feel so much better when she wakes up. She will. I promise. He placed the bottle on the kitchen table and taking the boy's arm, pulled him back towards the sofa in the center of the cottage. But the mounting excitement, the loss of control, the chaos, the struggle to subdue the girl had all compounded on his lack of sleep. And suddenly he felt too tired to continue. You know what? I need to close my eyes for a minute, too, he said. Let's lie down here and rest a little. Come on, lie down with me for a second. Peter did as he was told and walked over to the sofa. The man was lying on his side, one arm folded under his head. With his other hand, he patted the sofa cushion for the boy to snuggle next to him. Peter lay down with his back pressed against the larger man. His blonde head fitting just under the man's chin and felt an arm descend across his chest in a soft embrace. Sylvester could smell the boy's sweet hair and sense his soft, warm skin close to him. As he closed his eyes, he felt a new kind of presence pour over him. He no longer felt the burning coals of erotic desire, but rather the cooling breeze of tranquility of blissful quietude, of peace, of love. As soon as the man began to snore, Peter slipped off the sofa and dressed. He needed to get his sister home, but he was afraid that the man would wake up. He looked all around the cottage, finally noticing what the man called special sleeping medicine. Quietly, he stole over to the table for the dark brown bottle. The man had said that it was for children, so he would probably need a lot more than he had given to Pam. So he poured the large bottle's entire contents onto the pillow, right underneath the sleeping man's nose. The front door was not locked. Peter retrieved a handful of snow and brought it into the closet to help wake his sister. It seemed to take forever, and he kept on whispering close to her ear. We're going home. 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 
His cell phone started playing the star-spangled banner. The tall man with large hands had to lean over the red-headed woman laying next to him in the motel bed to answer his phone. Officer Turner speaking. He announced. He listened for a few minutes, then said, I'll get right over there and tell the parents myself. He ended the call and said to the woman, Great news. They found your kids. Tracked them with the GPS. They're both okay and heading home as soon as they get checked out at the hospital. Oh, shit. Thought the woman. I'm totally out of here. Autumn was ending. It had been raining heavily the previous week, and the fragrant foliage was thick with turgent leaves. Sundays were Stanley's favorite day of the week. He was reclining on the chase in his screened-in porch, leisurely reading the New York Times. Children's laughter made him rise his head. He smiled to see Peter and Pam playing croquette with the third Mrs. Samuels. This has been a Morbid Forest production. On this week's episode, you've heard Hansel and Gretel, written by Michael Sanders and narrated by Naomi Richards, Sean Moreau, and Matthew Trevino. Michael Sanders, a physician, scientist, writer, and poet, received his undergrad degree in philosophy from Cornell University and his MD from New York University Medical School. His first book of poetry, Fun in Space, Love in a Violent World, and Other Poems was published in 2014. Dr. Sanders currently lives with his wife, Diane, in Southern Florida, and is the mentor and unfortunate grandfather of this horrifying Ranger Harper. If you liked this tale, you can find other retellings like this one of Brothers Grimm Tales in his book, The Evil That Men Do, Modern Fairy Tales for Grownups. I'll link the book in the show notes. You can find it on Amazon and most Barnes and Nobles and other bookstores. Some of them you just have to order them from, but Amazon's the best way to go. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Morbid Forest for up-to-date news on the show. And if you want to write us a little love letter, send it to themorbidforest at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It's the best way for us to reach more travelers out there just like you. And as always, thank you so much, travelers, for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. And we'll see you next week on The Morbid Forest.